Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by BarkBox, a delivery service offering monthly deliveries of toys and treats for your dog. Go to getbarkbox.com weekend to sign up and get a free month of BarkBox. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This time around, we're talking about the early accessification of games. What does it mean to be a finished product in 2016, and what does it mean to be pretty much everything else? So Rob, I know this was a topic you wanted to talk about a bit this weekend. Was there something that sort of brought it up for you? Yeah, I mean, I I think to some extent this stems from uh, the things we're doing on Three Moves Ahead right now. Uh, some of the things have been floating around for a little while. Like, uh, I'm in the process of, of playing through Endless Legend again. Oh. This game I really, really like. Uh, but I have I hadn't played it seriously, like, since it, since it came out. And I sort of wanted to check back in on it, and I've been sort of putting together, uh, telling people to sort of check in with all the DLC that's come out. And what's dawning on me as I dive back into this game is that basically I'm playing Endless Legend for the first time again. Like huh. the stuff I learned the first time through, some of it still applies, uh, but like entirely new mechanics have been introduced. There's new factions that behave really differently. Uh, there's kind of an espionage thing because in 4X land, uh, once your game is finished, that's when you bolt on an espionage, uh, an espionage mechanic. <laughs> but it's just been it's it's been really it's really driven home just how many of like my favorite strategy games, at least. I can't go back and play the same game that I did when I first encountered it. That's not how a lot of strategy games operate now. Uh, yeah. Instead. It's, you know, you can't step in the same river twice. Like, there's always a steady stream of patches uh, coming down. Uh, Patches, content updates, DLCs that mean that the game itself is this ever-evolving creation. uh, A little bit in dialogue uh, with the creator. A little bit of a dialogue between the creators and the audience. And I see that again and again. And I'm not sure it's confined to strategy games. No, it's certainly not. I mean, it seems like, you know, from an outsider's point of view, strategy games are sort of one of the main genres that are like almost everything seems like it sort of releases in early access. And the other is definitely survival games. I don't I don't think I can name a survival game that didn't <laughs> launch in early access or, you know, whatever equivalent of it on whatever platform it came out in the last year or two, at least. Everything seems to be uh, anything sort of management related, survival related, strategy related, it seems like all of these games, maybe it behooves them to kind of come out in early access because all the systems are interacting in interesting ways that the developers might not completely know about until lots of people are playing them. Um, but yeah, it seems like even when things are not necessarily early access, everything, not everything, but so many kinds of games are still constantly, constantly patched. I mean, I know Overwatch came out in its pretty much final-ish state for the beta, but they made many tweaks, and they've made still more tweaks in new characters and things like that. So even completely outside of strategy, it seems like this is just a thing that happens now. 
Right. And like, I just spent this past weekend at Evo and like one of the things that like, I don't follow fighting games particularly closely, uh, though I'm starting to get into it more, but um, like Killer Instinct, for example, is a game where they explicitly talk about seasons. Um, Killer Instinct, like the way they frame updates and refreshes for that game is like, I think now it's in its third season or something like that. I don't know what that means in the context of the game. Like games don't have like, it's not, I'm sorry, this isn't like Mr. Robot or something. Like, (laughs) you know, like, do you mean like by season, do you mean, what do you mean? And what it, like increasingly it's, it's like there's this, these holistic, updates and rollouts right where like well we expanded this we rebalanced that we brought in this new character we brought in this new gameplay mode um and all that stuff used to sort of come out maybe (laughs) it's interesting because now you see people framing it differently you see people using the framework of like it's a season when it used to be this thing where there'd just be sort of a steady drip of patches and updates and some were more exciting than others. But now it's like this, it's this branding opportunity um, (laughs) around the the maintenance and updating of of your game where now you're going to, if you, if you have a successful game, you need to support it anyway. The nature of that support has been sort of repackaged as an entertainment product in itself uh, with I think just interesting implications for like what like what is a game now? When is it done? When when do you sort of like put it uh, like you know in a lucite block and appreciate like the finished product? <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like you kind of never do unless it's a triple A story based cinematic kind of game. Like I don't I don't see that happening to Uncharted, you know, <laughs> but. Most other things, there's some element of that in in our day and age, you know, as I'm talking like I'm an old lady now. In this day and age, you know, back in my day, you had a cartridge, you put it, you, you know, blew on it first, and then you put it in your NES, and that's kind of what you got, and that's how that was. And, you know, we've talked at times about sort of consoles and and how it was nice when things just sort of worked, Um, (laughs) certainly. But now, you know, I, I feel like we used to have these discussions a lot about DLC and like the later aughts, I guess, like 2007 to 2009. I feel like this that was the big discussion, like DLC. Does it make the game a different game? Is it, you know, does it sort of completely reinvent the experience? You know, Bioshock 2 is kind of a good example of that. Like that game is arguably the best Bioshock because of its DLC, because of some of the things in it. Mass Effect 2 has DLC that is incredible and wonderful and amazing and kind of makes it more of a complete game. And now we don't even talk about DLC as much anymore. We, we you know, we do talk about add-ons for, you know, DLC is just sort of adding on to the experience with that branding opportunity that you mentioned earlier. Uh, but it's, I don't know. It's all a little bit tiring at times. Again, sort of <laughs> from the perspective of old lady Danielle, who's kind of like, oh, yeah, this game came out. And then, you know, I Just look at it again. And I'm like, asleep. there's 10 DLC packs. How do I know which is the best DLC pack? Or do I fall asleep on my controller and take a nice nap in my blankie? You know, well, that's, <laughs> that's the and that I think kind of reflects a way that the way developers are thinking of their audience uh, has sort of changed. Like, I feel like for years, 
everyone talked about community. Everyone talked about like yeah. listening to our community. Like, I don't know, like, what was it? I feel like three years ago, I was at, <laughs> I was at like an E3 or GDC where literally every interview had those same bullet points. Like, we're oh, listening God. to our community. We're taking, we're, we're really building this game with our community. We've read your blog and, posts. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and I sort of viewed it as all just words and it's, it's it's like just the way we're marketing things right now. Um, but now the way I kind of look at it is it sort of seems like once a game is established and up and running, it's on new people to come and join that community, but the game doesn't go to meet them uh, yeah. is the way I would put it. Like you, you get to, you can hop on the train, but <laughs> the, the game now is is sort of being steered by what the developers in the community are sort of deciding they want together. Uh, and I don't know. I feel like maybe the, the first game that sort of inaugurated this new era, the way it felt to me, um, was the way Payday 2 went down. Oh, yeah. Sure. Because sure. Payday 2 was... First of all, I was so excited about Payday 2. I love Payday 1. Payday 2 came out. And I don't think it was a very good game at launch. Uh, there was so very little to do in it. Uh, they gated so much of uh, your your gameplay options that there were all these things that were theoretically possible and all these different approaches you could perhaps take in Payday Two, but it was all it was all behind gates. It was all progress locked, and then there were only a few heists. So within a few days, you'd have run the same missions again and again and again, often with the exact same tactics because you didn't have that many options. And I kind of checked out at that point. I was like, well, not <laughs> really my bag. Um, I don't think this this thing probably should have come out with a little more, a few more features, should have left, been left in the oven a little longer, whatever. And then the game just turns into this giant freaking phenomenon. Uh, yeah. because it just never stops. There's always, there's just this endless stream of, of new stuff for the game, new heists, new characters. It's all introduced in this different way. And at a certain point it dawned on me, I just no longer knew what payday two was. Yeah. Like the experience I had was kind of invalid now because there was so much more happening with that game that the community was plugged into because they were hungering for this stuff. They were like getting excited about like, you know, some some new asshole in a clown mask, basically. <laughs> it was like, oh, oh, yeah, this character sounds awesome. Uh, and I don't I didn't feel like I wasn't the target for these 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 updates and these rollouts. Right. Like it wasn't meant it, there was nothing like, hey, like we've got a bunch of stuff to the game. Come check it out. It was like feeding the beast. Um, yeah. And it kind of worked and that community grew. Uh, on, on the back of that. Now I kind of feel like everyone to, to a greater or lesser extent is kind of working from that playbook. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I, I definitely had nowhere near as negative an ex of an experience, but I did have, you know, that feeling of like, this isn't the game that I thought it was. And, and now I'm lost in, in old lady. I, I actually had that with a game. I loved and adored sunless sea, which I think is great and wonderful and, and incredible story-based game. But the, they completely changed the, the sort of combat model. At first it was a sort of turn-based kind of funky 
naval combat model right, where you, you know you had like a version right? yeah and i i really liked that actually i thought it kind of went along with the sort of slower pace of the game and sort of you know it wasn't entirely slow you know you had sort of your your little monitors running and you could you know take certain attacks at certain times but it, it felt very deliberate and it felt like it, it it sort of fit with that kind of game where you can kind of sit there and make decisions for a few minutes uh, with most parts of that game and then it went to sort of a real-time model where things are just sort of attacking you all the time in your little ship and when i first played it again and you know since i've, I've kind of gotten the hang of it but when I first played it again, I definitely got killed a couple of times and I was just sort of overwhelmed by giant crabs. And I was just sort of like, well, I used to be able to kill these crabs. I don't know what's happening now. And then I, you know, went and cried and, and you know, got under my blanket and took a nap. But there are definitely those moments, right, where it's it's kind of like, I, you know, I thought I really had a handle on this and then everything changed and I don't know if it's necessarily better. I mean, I've had good experiences with that as well. I think Don't Starve is a perfect example of a game that started out very, you know, I played it way back when, and I could still play it again and still kind of pick things up and figure out how to go from there, even though it's it's a very, you know, it's a pretty brutal game. <laughs> it's pretty difficult to kind of figure out what the hell to do in that game. Um, but, but it feels like it didn't change in, in a completely fundamental way, other than sort of adding another person in. I suppose that is a fairly fundamental change. But nothing about the UI is like radically, radically different. Or the way you interact with the world is radically different. And maybe that's kind of what it is. Maybe it has to do with being able to kind of recognize the, the main operations and the main things you need to do right away and then kind of find your way from there. Otherwise, I, I do have a tendency to get lost. Um, and, and, you know, of course, we're, we're game journalists. We play things all the time. We kind of have to always be tasting things and not be feasting on one game um, or more than a couple of games of the, you know, the kind of feast mentality a year. So maybe we're just out of touch with the way people like to play games now or the way, you know, true fandoms kind of grow around games now. I mean, look, I think I think in the I think the subtext of every idle weekend is we're out of touch. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, you're right. Uh, like, 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 <laughs> Idle Weekend is basically like two people like rapidly urging themselves onward to middle age, uh, sitting yeah, on a porch much. and having having coffee, having a nice uh, coffee, none of that fancy coffee. Just just Folgers will do. Yeah. Um, no decaf, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, I have, if I have caffeine after 11 a.m., I won't sleep. I won't uh, sleep. And I'll just read letters of to youngins all yeah. night. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think to be to be honest, I think it's not necessarily we're out of touch. We're just a different type of player. Uh, yeah. I think I think there's new That's fandoms. Good. I think people have new yeah. relationships with games. Like I don't think I don't like I don't think necessarily there's a, like a conscious attempt to I- exclude people or throw them off the train. It's just if you have that people who are. <laughs> You know, you know, so all the all the young kids today are saying they're thirsty. Um, oh yeah, I, 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 but I, I feel like there's this recognition that like you have these people, you have, you have a subset of your fandom that they're just going to keep showing up. Just give yeah. them improvements, give them more, and 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 quench that thirst, and you will be rewarded for it. And some people might be turned off by that, but. For those people, they also have the option of, uh, for, in most games at least, like don't buy the new DLC. Uh, <laughs> you can you can check out. Uh, all this stuff will be waiting for you when you get back. The problem is that it can be really dizzying when you do try to pick up an old game 
and it's become something completely different. And it's interesting. Like, so what Paradox does is like in, in the uh, options on Steam, you can actually load old patches. You can play. Oh, I, can, I can go back and play uh, the EU4 that I really fell in love with uh, like two patches in. I can really do that. I can do that at any time. But then I'm not really playing the, the – it feels at least to me like I'm not playing the real game anymore because the real game uh, is this thing that has been constructed in dialogue between Paradox and the EU4 community. But that thing has become this much, much more – I would say ungainly – uh, strategy sure. game with with a ton yeah. of interesting new mechanics and features, but it plays very differently now. It it, it has a completely different flow. Um, you you and I think Stellaris is a really fascinating example because I think it's fun. Like like I love Paradox. I I, I enjoy a lot of their games. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm podcast partners with with Troy Goodfellow. Yeah. Uh, but my hat is off to Paradox because I think the subtext of a lot of what they've done with Stellaris is like, yeah, we didn't remotely make the game. We really wanted to. <laughs> but here's an exciting update schedule uh, with these branded patches uh, named for great sci-fi authors and creators. Um, and with each of those, we're going to sort of turn, start taking steps to try to turn this game into... Uh, kind of what different segments of our audience were, were hoping it would be. Huh. So Stellaris and all those conversations we had about it when it came out. Yeah. Uh, I kind of wonder for how like how long is that shelf how long is the shelf life of that critical discussion, uh, given what's happening with Stellaris. Um, you know how much how much can it, how, how much can you evolve a game from the foundations of a design at launch into being something. Uh, something completely different, and I don't. I don't completely know. I. I, I don't know. Um, it's. It, it's certainly harder to add something later than it is yeah. to sort of conceive it from the ground up and and build it to be integral uh, at the start. But I just find it such an interesting thing now that this is the way. Uh, this is this is increasingly the way strategy games operate. Um, this is increasingly the way like you're seeing a lot of strategy games that are starting to blur the line between strategy and survival. You called out like hmm. uh, yeah. there's, there's all these survival games in the strategy space. I think like that's taken the form of games like Factorio and sure. uh, Rimworld and Clockwork Empires. And it's interesting to me because I, I do think I f- the one way in which I feel like kind of left behind is that you almost have to be embedded within the game community to really understand what's going on with it. Yeah. Otherwise, every time you go back, it's like you're going to going back home for like a 10 year reunion. You know what I mean? It's like every <laughs> yeah. time you go back, just six months later, you go back and you start cruising by all the old spots of the game that you used to really like. And it's like, wait, where'd that, where'd that go? There's a parking lot now? Wait, what's this game mechanic? Like, what's, <laughs> the, what's this menu? Mall? I've never seen this yeah. menu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, that's, that's totally true. And, and just as you're speaking about this, it seems to me that these things are, or these games are almost always going to become more unwieldy because there's a tendency to add as opposed to subtract, right? When it comes to systems and especially in a game that's right. very, very, you know, systems driven, there's always going to be 
well, what if we add this and this and this, and that requires adding that and that and that add to, you know, to counterbalance whatever was going on. I, I don't have specific examples of this, but it sounds like that's what's going on. Like, it sounds like there's almost like a feature creep aspect to this that like, oh, there's just so many things that are added. It's, it's never like, you know, what kind of sucked, you know, this whole system. So we took out cars and now it's a simpler, more, uh, you know, more more zen experience it's 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 better now because it's simpler like it seems like that doesn't happen often and maybe that's what's so frustrating that like the changes are almost always to make things more complicated and more intense and more 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 as opposed to like less 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 let's let's make this closer to the core vision of of this simple concept that we had at the beginning well yeah and that's an excellent point and maybe that Maybe that is actually sort of the heart of, of some of my misgivings with it because we sort of joke around on Three Moves Ahead that like a lot of times your audience doesn't really know what they want. <laughs> sure. They just yeah. think they know what they want. And now we live in an era where that's kind of an arrogant thing to say. Uh, and so I'm not totally comfortable with, with couching it that way. But Sure, sure. There is a tendency to keep saying like, give me more. I want more features. I want more mechanics. I want this to behave more realistically. I want this to create these sorts of gameplay scenarios. And a lot of that comes from a good place, but sometimes like what you're doing is you're adding more things that can break, more things that can throw the game off, more things that can sort of kill the pace of play. Yeah. Uh, and that can affect the game in negative ways. Um, a, a small example, I'm not sure you ever actually did it. I'm, I need to go back and check out whether this went through. Ultimate General Gettysburg is this great little war game. And it's very simple. Like, it's it's kind of beautiful. You can control it basically gesturally, where you take a brigade of, like, Confederate infantry, you mm -hmm. click and drag a line, and you can put curves and turns in it, and those guys will follow that line of march. Um, it's like you're just, it's like you're drawing up your battle plan in real time, and all the guys go ahead and do it. Really cool stuff. Nice. You did the same thing with artillery. And, uh... That was fine. Like, artillery moved slower. It took time for them to get ready uh, and, and move out and take, set up a new position and fire. But it was, it was cool. It worked out really well. And then there was this whole discussion. There were all these people pushing for, you need to be able to limber and unlimber artillery. Because that's a standard feature in horse and musket era war games is you, you need to have this feature where you, you tie the artillery piece to the horses and that takes a few minutes, and that's called limbering. And then for it to shoot, you need to actually untie the artillery from the horses, unlimber it, and, and make it ready to shoot. And that should be a button, and you should be able to do that. And I saw this discussion sort of unfold, and I don't know if it was ever added. I kind of hope it wasn't. I suspect it was. Uh, but I saw this discussion unfold, and I was like, that's the dumbest goddamn thing I've ever heard for this game. <laughs> like... It's it's it is a feature that has only ever muddied the waters in in most war games. Like it's something that really is sort of below your pay grade as as you know the general of this army. It's like you actually have to tell yeah. the guy. Everyone else, like you just tell these guys go here. Okay, cool. But with artillery, somehow, like people really want this feature of like going around to each battery and being like, okay. So let me tell you how horses work. <laughs> you got to tie the thing to the horse yeah. for it to move. If you just move, the artillery is just going to sit here and the horse is going to go somewhere else. So here, let me show you. Like, that's kind of how this plays out. And people are like, give me that feature. And I kind of feel like that issue repeats 
you can sort of you can sort of <laughs> extend that like where that desire comes from and how that affects the game. It's not it's not hard to imagine that pattern repeating in a lot of other games. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that is where I get a little suspicious of this change because I'm not always sure. Um, I I feel like when it comes to desire for updates, people's eyes can be bigger than their than their gaming stomachs. Yes. Or their thumbs, maybe. Or their hands. Yeah. I think that all makes a lot of sense. And I, and I feel like the sort of... Um, it's it's tied at least somewhat into the, the sort of concept of uh, difficulty fetishism, too. That, like, oh, yeah, we're going to make this game more complicated and more complicated and more complicated. And that means that it will often become not only less accessible, but, but that it's, like, it's cool and awesome and good to make something that's incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging and punishing for other people. I... I I don't know if it's a sort of direct one-to-one, but the sort of dark soulsification of many types of games feels like it comes out of this desire to please, you know, this this most vocal sort of subset of people, uh, you know, the community. The community, quote-unquote, are, are probably only a small subset of the people playing your game. You know, the people who are posting on forums and incredibly obsessive about features and so on and so forth. Um Presumably, it was a larger game. There are a lot more people playing it than are sort of really, really vocal about playing it. So I wonder if maybe a little of that is tied in as well to that sort of concept. Yeah, but I'm not, but I think it's dangerous to, like, I think that math is right. Like, the community yeah. is sort of dominated by the most vocal members and everything. But at the same time, if you ignore it, what people will see when they check in on your game is a big old dumpster fire. <laughs> um, and it will look yeah. like, and I'm guilty of it too. Like, you, like it's it's horrible. You go on Steam and you look and you see some like things are mixed, right? Most reviews are mixed, and you're like, yeah, yeah. All right, maybe I should read some reviews. But in a lot of cases, there aren't reviews because there's a million games now. Not all of them are getting reviewed, or they're still in early access ish, and so they can't technically be reviewed, but they've been sort of playable for three years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, you, so you see, like react like reviews are mixed and you don't know if that's just like legit or they push an update through and like people are basically going batshit saying like this game sucks now and i'm like i'm gonna tank your rating until you make it the thing i want again and so you kind of have to like you you kind of have to make sure that 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 vocal part of the community is is happy because they kind of I feel like they kind of control the impression you give to the outside world. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Honestly, it's, it's a little bit of a tap dance, I'm sure. And and with all of this, especially with that portion, I'm sure this is exhausting for developers. <laughs> it's sometimes wonderful. You know, there are definitely great cases of, of something in early access where, where people made a much better game because of it. But I have to imagine that a lot of folks who are making the kinds of games that are not necessarily traditionally early access, early accessificationable. I don't know what I'm trying to say there, but the games that don't necessarily cater to that view. I I wonder if they're incredibly frustrated with this idea as well. Like if you're making a pretty traditional narrative game, you know, sort of a one a single player narrative kind of game, um, you're you're probably annoyed by both the need to kind of uh, have this community and have things be you know sort of up to the community in certain ways yeah i i just i i pity developers who who now have to 
as well as make a really great game, you know, sort of continue making a really great game over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, I can, that does seem like it'd be, it'd be pretty frustrating. And I, I, it sort of feels like now everyone is in that boat where, um, if you're successful with a game, congratulations, this game is your life now. <laughs> like yep. that's, that's what your studio yep. does now is, <laughs> is, is that, um, the thing you created is, is wonderful and awesome. Uh, your creation days are done. Now you're in your maintenance days. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not as dire as all that, right? Like a lot of places yeah. can sort of roll teams around and, and create new stuff. But at the same time though, like, that I think that used to be true of mobile games, you know, where if a game is yeah. successful, is successful, guess what? You're kind of married to it. I think now for an increasing swath of games, like that's that's just true. Now that's that's yeah. the way games operate, except in those like super narrative uh, examples, right? Like I feel like this is one area in which. Um, you know, The Witcher was like a throwback. Hey, yeah. I worked it in there. Hey, hey um, nice. <laughs> but where it's like we're doing a couple big ass narrative DLCs that are almost like standalone games, and then we're out. That that experience is kind of locked. We're gonna fix. Yeah. We're gonna fix the UI. <laughs> we're gonna, well, we're gonna. Yeah. We're gonna sort of fix the that. UI. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and we're gonna put out these 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 huge stories, and then and then we're done. Um. And I think that's something you can do in these narrative games, but anything that's like really systems driven or or competitive, it feels like that is that is just the beginning. Yeah, man, that just sounds exhausting. Again, I need a nap in my old lady blanket, I suppose. <laughs> um, I think with that, it's probably time for us to move on to our weekend correspondence. But first, a word from our sponsor. Rob, I think my dog is haunted. Haunted? He like mopes around his playpen all day and he makes really like ghostly, ghastly sounds like woo. He's probably just bored. If only there was a service that sent fun toys and you know, like maybe treats every month to stave off that boredom. BarkBox. BarkBox? Once you sign up, they send you a monthly box of goodies, toys and all natural treats for your dog. And if you sign up at getbarkbox.com weekend, you can get a month of BarkBox for free. If only prices started at a reasonable $20 a month and they donated 10% of their proceeds to rescue charities. <laughs> they sure do. That's getbarkbox.com weekend for a free month of BarkBox when you sign up for a plan. Alright everyone, let's start up our mailbag. Our first email comes from Xavier in Cape Town. Xavier writes, Hey R&D, probably cheating because I have two questions. In my mid-twenties and my enthusiasm for gaming hasn't waned one bit. I still get excited about games and enjoy them now like I did when I was 16. However, I find that there are times where I don't pick up my controller for extended periods of time because of my ever-increasing responsibilities and or lack of energy and time. This makes me feel very guilty at times. Can you relate to this? Does this make me less of a gamer? Oh, for sure. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. dude. Like, <laughs> like actually, like, do you have your gamer card? Uh, you need to cut it in half right now. Revoked. Um, yeah, if you don't, if you don't honor that control, if you don't pick that thing up and play a game, uh, at least for a couple hours a day, like, it's done, You're man. Done. You're just done. 
Oh, man. So, Xavier, this is not something I've had as much of a problem with because I'm lucky enough to have games in my life as part of my job. But when I was working uh, like a million hours at the ACLU and doing other things, yeah, I I definitely had a period of a couple of years where I kind of only played like three or four games a year and maybe a couple of little things as well. But like finding time to play games was like really truly difficult thing that had to happen because I was like, no, I need to keep current. You know, I need to at least kind of know what's going on in games and I got to, I got to play things. I got to get into things. And I felt weirdly guilty too. I felt like, Oh God, I'm just, I'm not being, I'm not spending enough time with this thing. Not because I felt like I had an obligation, but that I felt like, Hey, I, I like this. I, this is a hobby that I enjoy that I've always enjoyed that, you know, when I do sit down and play a great game, I'm very happy that I did it. So I need to make the time, you know, to do this and to, you know, kind of get into it again and stay current and all these other reasons. So I don't think you're you're ridiculous for feeling like a tiny bit guilty, you know, on some level or feeling like, you know, your relationship to games obviously changes throughout your life. It's going to change as you have less and less time. And everybody kind of, it seems, has less and less time into adulthood. And then maybe you have a little more time when you're retired, I guess. Maybe there's got to be some retirees out there who are like masters of Halo. I don't know, something like that. (laughs) And that's something we all have to look forward to. But yeah, no, I don't think you're ridiculous at all for feeling a tiny bit guilty. And no, it doesn't make you less of a gamer. Although... Gamer, don't worry. You don't need the identity of gamer. It's cool. You can just be a person who plays games. That's it's it's better that way. <laughs> um, the other hand, say is like you know to to our discussion today. Like I totally understand there can be like I sometimes feel this inertia because I feel like I can't just pick up a game in a lot of cases. Like if I want to, yeah. like I have to get back into a game, which is a different thing. I, I like yeah. I, I like it's not. Oh, just pop that in, play it, enjoy it. You're out. No, it's it's more like, all right, what what relationship am I committing to uh, for the next for for the next few hours and probably the f- next few weeks to get the most out of it? So, I think I think it's become a little bit harder to be like an intermittent gamer, um, and yeah. that's a little bit unfortunate. Yeah, it's it's a little bit poopy. I, I <laughs> a little bit poopy. That's why I have I keep down well on my PS4 and I just make sure to play it like every now and then and and certain other little games there's a game I've been playing Munin a lot lately it's a puzzle game and I'm just like no got to play this it's good for me and I kind of like think maybe it is it's good to have yeah. kind of ca- palette cleanser type I, of games that are nice I keep playing on PS4 I keep playing Galaxy and Perfect. Tharsis which are two games I don't even like that much uh, <laughs> but a lot of times like it's 9:45 we got like 15 minutes you know, to, to play, uh, screw it. I'll just put on these two things that are quick hits in and out. Um, and yes, I may not enjoy them that much, but they are a game and I can play them, uh, and have a complete experience in the next like 15 minutes. And that is awesome. Uh, as opposed to pretty much everything else. Uh, (laughs) our next email, uh, comes from Paul from Oslo. Hi, R and D. I think the difference between how we read and understand scientific texts and their assumptions to to the ones games is all right. I need to move my laptop because I can't. I'm reading it at a weird angle. No, it's okay. It's a little. I think he's a, not a native English speaker. No. So it's a little bit. Yeah. All right. 
Hi, R&D. I think the difference between how we read and understand scientific texts and their assumptions compared to the ones in games is mainly in the reader-player relationship and their approach to the matter. When you read a scientific text, you don't just read through it and accept it, you analyze the content, assess the source and the quotations, and make up your own mind about the subject matter. There is no reason you couldn't use a game in the same way, but you would have to approach it with a critical mind to begin with. Priming students to do that in order to learn from, learn from the experience is basically the teacher's job, both when telling students to read a chapter in a book or an article, and when they try to teach by game. Obviously, games don't have citations and sources, but that doesn't make them pop scientific history texts. The the form of game doesn't allow citations too well inside that format, but one could try to make analyzing the inherent biases and assumptions in a given game a very good learning tool about source reading and sorting information out for yourself. One could use use it as a more historical text, like reading a newspaper article from before World War II, instead of a complete textbook. How all of that relates to hard sciences and bias will probably never quite leave my head. <laughs> Greetings, Paul from Oslo. I think Paul is completely right here. And this is sort of a discussion we've had in our mailbag for the last uh, three weeks, I think, or last couple of weeks at least, uh, regarding sort of the assumptions of, you know, there's always inherent biases in games, you know, what Troy calls the hidden lessons, right? Um, And we kind of, you know, I feel like I kind of stumbled through an answer about like, well, everything is somewhat biased. If it's in the human world, it's somewhat biased. But I think this is a really good approach to framing that. Like, yes, everything is biased, but you know, you approach certain things with a different mindset as opposed to, you know, approaching entertainment as if it's just sort of there to pacify you. And yeah, critical thinking can be applied just as well to this as with anything else. So, Paul, thank you for that, like, articulation of <laughs> of actually kind of it feels like what's going on here. Sweet. So our last email this week comes from Garrick. Garrick writes, Hey R&D, there's been a lot of talk in the past several years about the inclusion of women in video gaming. A lot of this discussion has turned around a clear and serious problem, such as the lack of women in development, dearth of women and girls as protagonists, shallow sexualization of female characters, machismo, sexual harassment, and so on. Amidst all these discussions, though, I've noticed a gender divide that doesn't seem to have received much attention. A survey of hundreds of thousands of gamers suggests that most strategy game audiences are around 90% male, and that this study counted games such as League, Dota, and Hearthstone, which seem to skew more female than more traditional strategy games. Another study found only 16% of young female players report playing RTS games, the second lowest number after MOBAs. Survey didn't even include turn-based strategy. There are more studies like this, and anecdotally, few of the female game critics and journalists I follow seem to ever talk about strategy games, with the occasional exception of Civilization. Furthermore, in my experience working in the games industry, the most utterly male development studio I have ever seen is also the only strategy game studio I've ever visited or worked with. As many more women seem to enjoy and create action games, RPGs, and other genres, despite elements that are said to push women away, is it possible that strategy games are actually uniquely alienating to women? If so, why? And how do you think the genre could become more inclusive and welcoming? Love hearing your thoughts on games and the rest of the world. Cheers and have a great weekend. Garrick. This is a really, really interesting email. And, you know, I've never done any of the research on this and personally have not played a ton of strategy games myself. So I... Well, that's the, that's the point, Danielle. Yeah, what, that's what's, the what's problem, up with right? That? What's your problem? That's the problem. I want to. I actually really do. And I, you know, I've... I've always enjoyed my little forays into the strategy genre, 
Um, but frankly, and, and I, I'll be completely honest with this, I, I have never thought of myself as having a particularly strategic mind. <laughs> Let's put it that way. The entire concept of thinking three moves ahead is something I have never been wonderful at. I'm a good tactical thinker. Like, you put me in a boxing ring and I can figure out where somebody's weaknesses are and exploit them and start working away on them. So it's not that I don't have a brain that can figure this stuff out, but maybe there is something to this. Maybe there's something that I've felt slightly alienated by and never really thought about it. I think there's something to unpack there about that. And, you know, I can think of several people, you know, in my life that I've known who have played, you know, this more male dominated genres, I guess you could say, like, I can think of a couple of, of women who, you know, are competitive fighting game fans, like people who are really, really into that stuff, even if they're not, you know, like professional gamers or anything, but I am, having a hard time thinking of uh, more than like one or two women that I know who are really into strategy games or war games. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, this is something that I think about a, a fair bit uh, for, for a couple reasons. Uh, one, I just think strategy games would probably be in a commercially healthier place if there were a little more uh, appeal across genders. Uh, sure. But it's also something I think about just because, like, I mean, Three Moves Ahead is uh, a pretty gender-skewed podcast. Uh, sure. where we get uh, we get women on the show probably a couple times a year. Um, and oftentimes those are for topics a little bit off the beaten path, uh, something that is a little bit beyond uh, traditional strategy games. And that is something that I've sort of wrestled with, like with three moves ahead. I've just, I, I've sort of the, the way I've made peace with it is just, we cover these types of games and we got to keep the, we got, we got to keep the, the, the train going uh, week <laughs> on week. And yeah. I can't, I don't like, there's not a huge bench to draw from of women who are going to be like hype on hype for the next, uh, you know, paradox game, for instance, right? Uh, sure. And then that, like, that get that response rate like gets way worse if you're talking about like the new RTS uh, from from some smaller developer or uh, God help us, a new war game about Operation yeah. Overlord. Um, and I think that dilemma that we face on Three Moves Ahead is also kind of what a lot of strategy studios are dealing with, right? Where it's like without getting into the causes of it, because I think the causes are a different discussion. We can have that in a second, but if you're making, if you're making a game, like if you're making a new Civ or the next, or, or something like Civ, right? Um, you're, you're going to be going for the audience that's, that's, that's been there for those kinds of games, right? And the people who are going to make those games are probably also going to be drawn from, from that audience. And so I think you're you're just going to end up with uh, a pretty skewed both like every step of this you're going to be skewing it more and more male right mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. going to be it's going to be more men men working on the game uh, so it's going to be a very like male dominated viewpoint uh, and then that's going to sort of carry through to like who does this game appeal to well it's going to appeal to uh, sort of the same sort of people who built the game and that. Is successful at sustaining a lot of a lot of franchises, but I, I, at the same time, like strategy doesn't do the business that RPG does. Uh, that RPGs sure. do, for instance. Sure. 
So to an extent, like I think you have to start going back to I mean, you have to start going, going, getting back into why aren't women interested in these types of games or why don't women feel like these types of games are for them? Like when you say like, I don't have a really strategic mind or anything like that. Like that sounds like, that sounds kind of like internalized sexism, right? That sounds, oh, it totally like, is. That sounds no like question. bullshit to me. Yeah. Uh, so, but, I, I, but then yeah. where does that come from? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm I'm bad at chess. That's I mean that's where it comes. From. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. That's where it comes from for me. But I also I grew up in a household where there were my sister and my father were really great at chess, and they always beat me. But my sister, who's younger than me and very much a woman, uh, was a lot better at it. So I, I guess it's it's not that I think like women suck at chess. I kind of think Danielle sucks at chess. But that is. Of course, you can never completely divorce yourself from those things, right? Like the larger, you know, picture of toxic sexism that kind of swirls around in the atmosphere is always going to have some kind of effect on you, right? Everybody. Right. And then, and then how do we get from I'm not good at chess, ergo strategy games just aren't for me. Like that, that, that yeah. leap interests me. I, I mean, well. I, I truly, especially in the last year or two, have, have, had this incredible desire to actually understand them because I've, I've become more and more interested in history in general. I've become more and more interested in sort of the mechanics of war in general. I've, you know, I've kind of looked at some of the total war games and like watched some let's play things and been like, Hmm, that looks kind of cool, you know? And then, you know, whatever happened that I, I, you know, fell off and, and went somewhere else. But every time I've dipped my toe into that pool, I, I've always been kind of like, yeah, I can, I could see myself swimming there, you know, if I put a thousand hours into it. And maybe that's what the real problem is for me, that I perceive that these are incredibly specialized experiences that I cannot just sort of pick up and start in on it without many, many hours of sort of like training almost and sort of practice. I mean, to me, these games look like something like a Dota where you have to spend so much time in it to actually get anywhere with it and actually understand what's going on. And it's like, well, it's Friday night and I'm tired and I could keep playing X, Y, and Z, or I could spend, you know, 10 hours in the tutorial of something. <laughs> I mean, something else I always wonder is just like, why did, why did dudes love military history? But like, in general, women don't. And that's a yeah. huge, that's a huge stereotype because obviously some of the best, like, military historians working are, um, are, are women. Yeah. Um, and weirdly, a lot of them are Australian, but that's neither, <laughs> that's neither that's here nor there. Fascinating. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it, there's this weird, like, cluster of, like, really top flight, uh, military history researchers. Uh, and a lot of them are female and a lot of them are, are based in Australia. I don't fully get it. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but, but the thing is, like, that said, um, if you look, sorry, that's, that's okay. I have no sound insulation from the street. It's totally okay. Um, so when you look at like military history and wargaming and stuff like that, it just feels like only Boy, guys are going to be land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's just like the com like talking about communities again. I just don't know if like women look at who's already into those spaces, take one look around and they're like, Nope, this ain't, this ain't my scene. Uh, or if there's something just like, or if there's, uh, I hate to put it this way, but it's like, is there something more gender essentialist 
uh, about like <laughs> enthusiasm for times when humanity's just like thrown down and gone at each other. Uh, where like dudes are sort of conditioned to be like, hell yeah, I want to learn all <laughs> about that shit. And a lot of women are just like, that doesn't, that doesn't do it for me at all. To be totally honest, like from my point of view, I am so fascinated in things like fighting styles, like like the actual moment to moment of combat. I, I get really excited about that sort of thing in, in different historical eras. You know, I, I get really excited about like, well, how, you know, how how is the marching in this culture different from the marching in that culture and sort of like the structures of power in sort yeah. of different militaries. I'm actually really interested in military psychology and sort of, how you know, the mechanics of war, but for whatever reason, I've never felt myself like I want to be a general. It's more that I'm like, well, not that I want to be on the front lines. That's a horrible thing to say. I, I do not. I know that's a completely fucked up thing, but, but I'm interested in sort of the soldier's experience more than the general's experience. And I don't know if that's a lady thing or a me thing. As with all of this. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's, there's, like, it's hard to have this discussion without generalizing from your own experiences. Right. Of course. Uh, it's, of course. It's, 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 it's like you can see, you can see the divide and it's just, it's, it's, it's there and it's a weird thing because it's not just, I think for a lot of, a lot of strategy games, it's not just the type of game, it's the subject matter. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and you end up with these, this, this huge, this this hugely male dominated uh, genre uh, where women are almost completely absent, uh, and if, if they are in those spaces, they're they're going they're going undercover, uh, which yeah, I totally understand. Yeah. I used to be part of a wargaming forum, uh, which boy at time that it's, at, at times that wargaming forum was like just felt like it was just to the left of like Stormfront or something. But <laughs> sure, uh, sure, like every time someone showed up. Um, every time, every time, like a woman showed up, uh, the first thing that happened was no way is this, no way is this a real woman? Like this is an affiliate marketer or something like what's going on here. Um, and so like if, if you were a woman in that space, um, you, you obviously wouldn't let anyone know or else it was just, or else it was just going to make your, your existence in that space untenable. I, I will say this. I personally am more comfortable. Like, if we talk about sort of like super hyper masculine spaces, I am personally so much more comfortable in like a boxing gym where I am the only woman or maybe one of two than imagining walking into like an incredibly, incredibly high level grognardy war game kind of well, thing. Like that, that I genuinely would feel like, oh God, I, I'm out of my league. I don't know what to do versus being like, you know what? I'm small, but who cares? These guys are going to see that I can hit things and I'm tough. Like, it's a weird thing, right? These are both sort of thought well, of as like hyper masculine spaces. But. Sort of, but I think it's, I think it's just orders of magnitude different. Like, you're talking about these like macho, like jock culture spaces. Yeah. Like, maybe, yeah, okay, maybe martial arts is like male dominated, but like, compare if if we're going to say that's male dominated, then. You have to find another word to describe what wargaming culture. Yeah, sure, because sure. it ain't male yeah. dominated at that point. It's, it's like, like almost just, exclusive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like I, I went to this miniatures con uh, a couple years ago, and I like I have never felt more out of place. Uh, sure, like, I was like, sure. this is like there's just like there's there's no one here that's not like a fifty year old white man. Um, <laughs> sure, that's sure. the other, that, that's the other thing. I, I also kind of wonder like what is what is non white participation. 
uh, in oh, totally, uh, strategy totally. and wargaming. How does that break down? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating uh, divide. I have obviously no prescriptive remedies because I don't even understand the causes. And right. to a point, I'm not even sure. Like, I'm not sure I view it as a problem. Except commercially, it's people like what they like, and I'm, you know what I mean. I, I, I just. If if I felt like these were spaces where where women were like being actively and aggressively excluded, I would be probably more concerned. But the problem is like I'm not even sure there's like many women trying to get in the door. I yeah. just I just feel like like a lot of women don't give a shit. And you know I'll use you as an example, right? Like there's a few strategy games we talk about, we get excited about. The you know we talk yeah. about Ban- Banner Saga and all that. And I know you used to be into Rise of Nations, but yeah, I was super into that. Yeah. Right, and and that's that's deep end of the pool stuff. But like, just this, you you're, you're never going. You are not someone who I think is ever going to be saying like, "Boy, Zachney, I'm really excited about this upcoming 4X game. I'm really excited about this new uh, Operation Barbarossa war game." I just don't. I just don't see that happening. And that's not that's not an indictment of you or of strategy games. It's just kind of a fact that I'm I've learned to live with. I. I am open to it, Rob. The door is open. If you want to show me this beautiful world on this magic carpet ride, I'm down. I will. My my mind is open. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I I will try. I will try to do right. uh, for you in strategy <laughs> games what I did with you in tampons. Uh, so. Oh, it sounds perfect. Uh, yeah, exactly. It'll be it'll be great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. Oh man! Speaking of tampons, what are you doing this weekend, Rob? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah. God, there's no way, like, I want to say things, but, like, at that point, the podcast would be completely off the rails. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what I've been into of late, my weekend project. Danielle? Yeah. This is the year I've gotten into the Tour de France. Oh, my God. Okay. okay. Oh, shit. I, like, didn't know it was this good, but it is. Because on the one hand, it's like... It is like a pure moods relaxation CD. Like it is basically like something that it is, it is the sports equivalent of walking into a store that sells like crystals, like and, and <laughs> like holistic healing shit. This nice uh, geode here's purple amethyst. Yeah, yeah. Like good. I just turn it on in the morning and like there's just beautiful French countryside and really athletic people doing athletic things on that countryside. And there's British announcers who are just very laid back and avuncular about the entire thing. And yet it's also kind of a mesmerizing and gripping sporting contest. Um, So, because it is like this race that's unfolding kind of in slow motion with these weird elements that you don't see in, in other forms of racing um, because cars aren't people. Uh, but yeah. so, so like the thing that I've gotten into just from the, from the competitive and, and sporting side of it is just, there's all this weird psychology of cycling that I haven't really figured out like why it is this way. Like for instance, that, um, you got these teams of cyclists and the lead rider, the guy who's, who's really striving. He's the, he's the one that's, that's striving to win. Everyone else is there to support him. Uh, his teammates are there just to set his pace. Uh, yep. they're not actually competing. They're just riding alongside him, basically doing the same thing he's doing, 
but just to sort of keep him going. And that's so yeah. weird to me because it's like, well, why can't he just do that himself? I don't know, but he can't. Like, this <laughs> appears to be a fact It's very cycling. helpful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's something they do in um it's also something that happens in running, but more often than not in uh hyper long distance running. Like actual distances like the Tour de France, like more than 100 miles, right. that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. It's intense. And then you get like these these things where like you get these temporary alliances that are somehow sorted out over the road. Like it's like watching like kind of like animals, right? This weird like this weird pack is moving down these French roads. Yeah. With their own little relationships. It's like it's like fucking Meerkat Manor on wheels. <laughs> like that's what it feels like. Is like awesome. suddenly two guys like sort of like check each other out and strike up a friendship and they break away from the pack. They're not they're they're competitors, but like they're working together for a while because they want to sort of put the Peloton behind them. Um, and other guys sort of have to judge, do we chase them or, the, or are they doing this too early? Are they going to run out of gas? Uh, there's this sort of touching moment with these two competitors on this breakaway. Um, they got caught up uh, and they're reeled in over the course of like this 15 minute chase. And at some point they sort of both look over their shoulders and they see the Peloton there like 50 yards behind them. They look at each other, sort of shrug, give each other a handshake and then fall back into the pack. Um, and it was like kind of, it was kind of beautiful. And then there's this the psychology of like, you'll see these guys, like one, one rider will like roll up to another and sort of look at him and he's trying to assess whether that guy has anything left in the tank. Cause if you're, and you're trying to assess like, can I break him? Right? Like, can mm-hmm. I, if I put the, you know, if I put the hammer down right now, I'm tired too. So if I, if this doesn't work. I'm screwed. I'm just going to be burning energy. I'm going to have a worse day tomorrow. I might even fall off the pace. But if this does work, I might actually just sort of psychologically shatter this guy and yep. he's going to try to match me and then he's going to, he's, he's going to, he's going to tire out and then I'm going to pick up like, you know, two minutes on him or something. He's going to fall apart. So, and it's all about like, just trying to figure out from the way a guy is looking, from the way he's from the way he's pedaling, with his demeanor, whether he's still got it. And I find that amazing. That's so different than any other kind of racing. In the meantime, like it's all like gorgeous pastures and like yeah. like gorgeous like long haired cows, sort of placidly watching. <laughs> uh, it's really cool. It is really really cool. I've never super gotten into it myself, uh, but everything you're describing is sort of why I love long distance running. <laughs> <laughs> and the sort of endeavor of of all endurance sports and how utterly miserable they can be, but also that is just pure guts on the line. That is guts, guts, guts all the way. You know, obviously there's strategy involved, yes, but like when it comes down to it, when it comes down to making those decisions, it is just your body versus gravity versus the world. And it is a beautiful thing to see the human spirit break through that kind of thing. So I think I might have to get into it now. Uh, <laughs> um, so my weekend project, I have a few potential weekend projects, but I'm going to go with review. Review is a TV series where a fictional nerdy white guy reviews life experiences. He reviews things like being in a riot, going into space, going through a divorce, eating many pancakes, all, all kinds of sort of ridiculous things. Um, it is really, really funny. It's by uh, 
program creator Andy Daly, and he is actually the guy himself as well. He's He's been in many things, many sort of ridiculous things. So it's the same folks, I believe, who made with Bob and David the sort of uh, Mr. Show revival comedy series that was brilliant and beautiful and subversive. And this is also brilliant and beautiful and subversive and really, really funny. Um, I, I like comedy pretty often. Um, but comedy doesn't always actually make me laugh. This show has made me guffaw and spit out my dessert while I was <laughs> watching something. And as usual, credit always goes to Patricia, my girlfriend, for finding this, figuring out it was actually a beautiful, wonderful thing and not just sort of a weird thing. And yeah, it's, it's God, it's really good. It's in its, I think, third season now. Um, it started a couple years ago and it is, oh God, it's beautiful. Comedy Central, but we're watching it on Amazon. Go watch it. I don't want to say too much about it because it's the premise itself is pretty ridiculous and, and kooky, but there's a through line. There's, you know, sort of a narrative through line through all of it that is just wonderful. Uh, so highly, highly recommended review. So awesome. I think with that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you're enjoying the show and you have a moment, go ahead. Go to iTunes, open it up, leave us a little review. It means so, so much to us, really helps us out. And if you could go ahead and tell those friends that you've been secretly thinking might enjoy the show, that'd be a huge help as well. means the world to us. Uh, Word of mouth is really, really important uh, to our growth and our happiness. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Oh my god, it's and with Bob time. and David. I said Larry and David. The name of the show is With Bob and David. <laughs> No, you got to do it like a full robot. Just so, just have Chris, just have Chris drop this weird edit in. I want it so seriously. Badly. I okay, okay, all right. I'm gonna clap in for him. Bob and David.